Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Bruce is the direct line to all this true in this shitty world. Seriously. What does he know about our world? You should be listening to our music before you start getting confused and hating yourself. I listen to everything. I can feel it all right here. It's like Bruce knows everything I've ever felt. Everything I've ever wanted. My poems, they're not brilliant, but they're mine. You think that this man sings for people like us, but he talks to me. Hello and welcome to 32 Fans of Movies, where we discuss all things movies, past, present, and occasionally future. My name is Sammy Chester. And I'm William Simon. Today we're going to be talking about Blinded by the Light and in honor of 32 Fans. We're going to be talking about our favorite box office bums. And yeah. Yeah. So our, our so-called guest really doesn't need any introduction, Av Sinensky. Uh, in, in Israel, the last two, the last few days have been really difficult because the daycares all go on vacations and the desperate parents are going nuts trying to look for things to do with their kids. Are you the kind of parent this time of year who's dragging your kids to the movies? I wish. I, w- I wish I could say that's where I was going. I, having just gotten back from a few days at Sesame Place in Pennsylvania, I enjoyed my first day of vacation back at work today. So it's been a, it's been a fun week. So you don't use movie theaters as babysitters for your kids? Uh, not yet. Not yet. I think uh, they're not quite old enough to sit through any movie that they're not like particularly excited for, especially the little one, but we'll get there. Okay. Well, on the topic of movies you're not particularly excited for, Will, I think this month you've taken a different approach to watching movies because word is that you went to a movie festival. Uh, uh, yeah. Where do you hear that? Tell us everything. <laughs> tell us everything. Why did you go? Where, what, where was the festival? And what did you see? Yeah, so this is my second year going to this festival. It's the Sidewalk Film Festival. It's like pretty low on the list of like important festivals. But I went there for the first time last year because my sister just recently moved to Birmingham, Alabama, where the festival is. So it was just like a nice excuse to go visit her and her husband. Are they they able to get big movies? Because I remember we, we spoke about that last time, how there are tons of film festivals, but a lot of it comes down to, I guess, their budget in terms of if they're able to get exciting movies or not. Yeah, it's much more like small movies. Uh, Like the biggest one was probably The Nightingale, which tells you what you need to know, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So what stood out? What did you really like at the festival? Uh, So my favorite movie at the festival was this movie. I'd never heard any hype around going into it, but it's this documentary called Scheme Birds about this 
Scottish teenager and her friends. She just growing up in this really shitty part of Scotland. She becomes pregnant. Her cousin gets arrested. A lot of really shitty things happen to them. And you said uh, it's a documentary? Yeah, it's a documentary, but it feels like a narrative film, like in the way it's told. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything is just so compelling. It's it's very well shot, very would captivating. You say, would you say it did for you what the Scottish movie Wild Rose did for me earlier this year at a different festival? <laughs> I think they have very little in common aside from being Scottish. Okay, well, as soon as you said Scottish movie and it inspired you or it impacted you, I immediately connected with your film experience. So were there a lot of documentaries at the festival? Yeah, there were a lot of documentaries. There's this other one about the disappearance of um, Dag Hammarskjöld. Guy, the guy who took the Contiki across, yeah. uh, the, across the Pacific. Yeah, and that was pretty interesting. Um, they ended up finding this much deeper conspiracy that I won't spoil, but I recommend that one. There was a documentary about Mike Wallace. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that movie was getting some play. It's made by an Israeli director, I know. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I would, that movie, put it this way, that movie was going through the movie podcast community. Mm-hmm. And maybe because I'm in Israel, I saw it even being advertised on buses. Oh, so, wow. um, and it's, you know, it's not a movie in any way about Israeli society. It just happens yeah. to be an Israeli director. Yeah, yeah so, so that, that's somewhat of a commercial. I mean, my guess is that documentaries, I don't know if, uh, if this is your impression as well. My guess is documentaries just cost less for festivals to book than your average narrative film. I mean, they're definitely lower on the lower budget wise like you're never going to have like a really big 100 million dollar budget documentary that's that just doesn't really make sense yeah i wonder if uh you know a documentarian is someone who's more likely to just want their movie to be wherever whenever anyone is willing to see it as opposed to you know more traditional movies that have a whole release strategy and you know kind of want to pick their spots about how they want to promote the film it might just be a different type of strategy where, you know, if, if, a, if a festival is willing to take a doc, then they'll, they'll let them have it. Yeah, docs are, but I agree with you. Docs are harder to see. Like, they're hard to find on French Netflix online, and they don't show in theaters so much. So I feel they're easy to miss, unless you do the will approach. Um, I also saw Foosballers, which our guest Lee talked about a couple months back, the documentary about people who play foosball professionally. Something really exciting happened. There was, uh, I didn't realize this going in, but one of the people... Uh, one of the professional players featured in the documentary was this older woman from Birmingham, Alabama, which is where I was seeing it, obviously. She was there in attendance. They had a foosball table set up and everything, and you could go challenge her at foosball. And she, you know, crushed everyone. It's really just made with, like, uh, reverence for this weird, weird, really, really small interest. world. Were there any, so you mentioned The Nightingale. Were there any non-documentary movies you saw at the festival? Um, yeah, I saw uh, two that I, I really loved. Um, the first being this movie called Greener Grass. Would it be possible for me to get the baby I gave you back? I don't know, Jill. It doesn't hurt to ask, right? It did hurt. I didn't like it. It's a very absurdist common, uh, a very absurdist comedy, sort of poking fun at a lot of aspects of suburban life. Um, made by these two uh, first-time female directors, but it also features Beck Bennett from Saturday Night Live and Darcy Carden, who plays Janet on The Good Place. And it's just a hilarious movie. I want to talk about some of the really off-the-wall things that happen in it, but I feel like it's best if you just experience those things for yourself because there's one moment like halfway through this movie where I was just laughing for 10 minutes straight in disbelief that it happened and just don't want to give it away. So seek this movie out. They said it's going to be on video on demand, uh, like on Amazon Prime in October, I believe. So uh, check it out.
Uh, it's called Greener Grass. So maybe tell us, the, the festival I went to was not what I expected in the sense that I, I always thought when I imagined movie festivals, which I frankly haven't imagined ever, but still, that you get like a day ticket and then you sort of, it's like all you can eat, all you can watch, just mm-hmm. whatever you can wander into. The one I went to in Jerusalem two, a month and a half back, it wasn't like that. It was just individual movies you purchased. So it was almost just like going to the movie theater a bunch. The one you went to, was it like how I imagined them? Meaning you got like a full day pass and then whatever you could get fit into your schedule, you could you could fit? Yeah, the one I went to, you could get like a weekend pass or just a day pass, depending on what day you were going. And then it's just a bunch of things showing. There's like a schedule with everything on it. And you just show up for whatever movie you want to see. And uh, what was yeah. what was the vibe? Like, were you having to pace yourself because you were doing like movie after movie? How many movies did you do in one day? Uh, so I did uh, five movies a day. And, and ha- ha- like by movie number four, you're, you're like running on fumes. You're sort of like eating raisins and nuts uh, during like a few minutes. Of, like, yeah. How does that work? I think like, usually people, about, like a... people, even people that like movies, the idea of seeing like five or six movies three days in a row is intense. Yeah, like I was honestly surprised uh, my sister and her husband went with me, but they seem to be keeping up pretty much. I think it's just that you have to see like a good variety of movies because if you're seeing like five really bleak... like Nightingales. Yeah, if you're seeing the five Nightingales in a row, it's going to be pretty exhausting. But you know, like the first day we saw like the Mike Wallace documentary followed by Greener Grass, which is a really like fun comedy, followed by Nightingale, followed by The Death of Dick Long, which was another opposite <laughs> from The Nightingale. Uh, so tell us about the Nightingale. One of the things listeners may have noticed is that we held an open survey to see which would be our feature movie this month. And it's the first time we've ever done this, and we'll see if it's uh, successful. Maybe go back to it in, another time. And we put three movies before people, three very different movies. I think we're going to get to all of them on today's uh, pod. We had the Nightingale, we had Loose, and of course we had our actual feature that won, Blinded by the Light. Av and I, I don't think I've had a chance to see Nightingale yet, but there's been a mix of rave reviews, and this is a movie that if you can stomach it, you'll never forget. What was your What was your take on it? Yeah, so I think The Nightingale is the best of those movies that we put up on the poll. It's a very bleak movie, though. This is from the director, uh, Jennifer Kent, who previously did The Babadook. So that was a straight-up horror movie. This is much more of a, a revenge type western type movie there is a lot of violence in it but it's it doesn't feel gratuitous it's all very in serving of the story and the atmosphere it's really just this journey that you go on with this character and you really feel for her all the way through and it's a very powerful experience i highly recommend it can you feel that it's by the director of the babadook or the babadook i actually had a lot more issues with the babadook that i didn't have with this movie i think she matured a lot as a director with this movie and there aren't a lot of similarities really is it is it more similar to true grit when i when i heard about the nightingale it sounded sort of like true grit like there's a younger woman and some men treat her badly and then she wants to go after them i mean yeah it's it's comparable in that way for sure yeah but i mean with jeff bridges i feel true grit never really got as true or maybe as gritty (laughs) it's hard to see jeff bridges all dressed up in a funny beard or mustache and uh, and sort of get too dismal, I guess. Without him, a movie about a girl seeking revenge can go can go dark places. You're saying. I feel there's a good amount, particularly in the last few years, of women seeking revenge. Uh, I forget off the top of my head what it's called, but there was that really kind of artsy shot movie last year that I really liked. 
about that sort of mistress who takes revenge upon the people. Was it called that, Revenge? Uh, yeah, I want to say it was, the movie was just called Revenge, right? There, there was a movie from last year called Revenge that I thought was pretty good. It was very gritty, very violent. Very, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's definitely like a, a bottle movie. It all takes place like in one... Uh, in that fancy house, the designer house in the desert. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was a good movie. Yeah, okay. And I'm glad. Uh, I think that's a movie you're allowed to forget the title. Um, yeah. So how would you put this into the context of women who people don't think have sort of the ability to get revenge in this case, pushing through and, uh, and getting back at, their, at the perpetrators? I do feel like a lot of those movies end up being sort of gratuitous in the, like, in the actual revenge aspect of it. Like it, it feels like there's just the audience is supposed to just like cheer. It just gets like super violent. But here, everything feels really earned. It's, it's, it's a very slow movie, uh, very methodical pace. You know, I think it does a good job with it. Is it. It's a top movie of the year for you? You're saying you like it more than Loose, you like it more than Blinded by the Light. It was your favorite movie of the festival? Uh, no, my favorite movie of the festival was uh, Scheme Birds. But this, oh. I would say, is my number two. Oh, okay. So bottom line is, you would say, if you like Westerns, if you like horror, if you like Babadook, who else should see this movie? Uh, yeah, if you're not too afraid of things that are, it, it'll make you feel very down for like a few hours probably after watching it. If you're okay with movies like that, then I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Put it this way, Will, normally you're able to fill our recent watches by movies you've seen just in theaters. So how different a month for you was this at the movie theaters, given that you had this festival of intense sort of more artsy documentary nightingales? then you're run-of-the-mill sort of like B-minus uh, horror flicks in theaters. I mean, I was looking through my recently rated movies on, on Letterboxd, and I definitely have a much higher average rating that I've given out in like the past couple of weeks than I usually do, just because I've not been seeing like the kitchens of the world. Yeah, yeah. So th- this, is a, this is a highlight of the year for you. You're saying oh, yeah. August, August knocked it out of the park. Yeah, August best month of the year for me. Okay, because that's what I was saying last month, but last month I was coming right out of a movie <laughs> festival as well. Yeah, yeah. That's because you're in a place where it curate movies to like find the best ones for you to watch. Yeah, so when Av comes back to us with the Long Island uh, Five Town Festival, hopefully in the next few months, he'll, he'll have the same impression. Um, and the, the reason I say that, Will, is I thought August was very dismal, and I felt it was sort of the dry kind of January-type month at the end of a somewhat weak summer, you know, Endgame basically blew open the summer in some case, even though, you know, very, it started the summer with this like big blockbuster and nothing really measured up as we spoke about in a past episode. And there's been some kind of cool, more independent movies along the way. And I felt August, it really dribbled out in terms of none of the bigger movies in August did it for me to the, to the extent that I avoided them, frankly. Um, I don't know uh, about you. Is there anything that stood out for you this month? Anything that really you would, you would tell people to avoid? Um, so, yeah. So, I'll, I have a few that I just wanted to talk about quickly. Um, two movies that are not, I would say, must-sees, but both movies that I really enjoyed and had a lot of fun with. Um, the first was the young teen comedy Good Boys, which, you know, I saw the trailer. It looked like it would be a lot of fun. It, it's, I was a little concerned it would be the type of movie where all the good jokes were in the trailer. Mm. But I went to go see it with a friend, and we both had a, really a lot of fun with it. Um, you know, they, they do a good job of developing the characters so that you actually feel connected to them and see the differences between them, which becomes pretty central to the plot. And there's a lot of good jokes in it, a lot of nice moments between them, which is a really 
you know, solid movie about friendship. Um, there's also a scene in the movie that is directly ripped off from Boogie Nights. So I got kind of a thrill out of that. As, as we all know from last episode, that's one of my favorite movies of all time. So I really loved seeing that. Um, the other one is a movie called Ready or Not, which if you've gone to see a movie in the last two months, I'm sure you've seen the trailer for it. Uh, the one downside is that if you've seen the trailer, you've kind of seen the movie, but it's just kind of a, a more drawn out version of it. But it's, again, a lot of fun. It's, a, it's very short, I think like 90 minutes. It's a fun time in the theater. Uh, I think anyone who sees the trailer and thinks that they might be inclined to like it will like it if they go see it. So you, see, you should give listeners a little taste of what Ready or Not is. It's a sort of absurdist horror movie? Is that yeah, it's, it's, a, it's like a horror comedy movie. It kind of is a, a satire of, you know, the 1% and kind of the ridiculousness of the super rich. There's a, few, there's a bunch of good jokes in it that kind of reminds me of Succession in a lot of ways, where it's kind of not only a commentary on the super rich, but on the incompetence of like the succeeding generation and, you know, their inability to take the reins from the people who actually made them rich because of their spoiled childhoods and upbringings. And there was just a lot of good jokes in it, a lot of fun moments. And it's, you know, a fun time in the theater. Yeah. So ready or not, the, the plot, for those who haven't seen it, just to give a sense of what we're talking about is a bride is sort of welcomed into a wealthy family and then they all basically try to kill her. And she has yeah, to they, they, they have this, you know, family tradition that on the wedding night, the new member of the family has to play a game and she, she draws the card for hide and seek, which it ends up being a, a very violent game of hide and seek that yeah. I, I would it not recommend. Like a, it sounds like a classic horror movie setup, sort of like almost like a B, a B horror movie, really, you know, but you're saying yeah, they, they but it's like, to bring a lot more out of that. Well, it's just, you know, it's very, the, the tonally, it's very, you know, self-aware and kind of winking at you the whole time at how, at how ridiculous the movie is, which, you know, many horror movies I've seen are exactly the same without that self-awareness, and that's a big difference for me. Well, I feel you definitely saw Ready or Not. Oh, yeah, I saw it the night it came out. Did you like it more than Av's describing? Uh, no, I'm, I'm about on the same page with Av. You know, if you saw the trailers, you're getting about what you'd expect. It was it was a good time. I uh, think what everyone... So yeah. the other movie Avi mentioned, everyone is probably thinking if they've seen Booksmart and they haven't yet seen Good Boys, they're saying, what is Good Boys vis-a-vis Booksmart? You know, are, do the two seem to sort of speak in tune to each other? Even though one came out at the beginning and the summer one at the end. And the other question people probably have, at least the impression kind of I had is, does Good Boys feel fresh? Does it feel like it's doing something new? Because there's so many versions of that movie, no? Um, I don't know that I've seen too many that are quite like this. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the characters are younger than you usually get in these types of movies. So like the, you know, the ratio of sex jokes and that type of stuff to given the age of the main characters, I thought was pretty new, pretty new, not something that I think I've seen before. And I thought the, the three child actors were all really good. And it was just, it just really delivered a lot of laughs and a lot of good times. And I think it was just a really nice, sweet movie about friendship and how, you know, you form these friendships when you're very young and, you know, you kind of expect them to last forever when you're in that stage. And how do you deal with the fact that, you know, when you get to later points in life, people start, people's lives start going in different directions. Yeah, I think Booksmart and Good Boys had very different uh, thesis statements, I would say. Book, Booksmart was very much a movie about your self-image, your self-identity. And Good Boys was really about friendship and what happens when people sort of grow apart from each other. It's interesting, though, because I recall, I've definitely said about Booksmart that the part of the movie that held him together was the relationship between the two leads. And so friendship seems to me, if nothing else, to sort of be a core of both movies. But I guess any movie about a bunch of friends in their preteen, teen years is going to be about friendship 
plus minus. There's something very pure about the relationship between right yeah. three children who you know that's all they have. You know they, they do everything together. Every you know all their hobbies and interests are kind of off each other. Especially you know the the, the three characters here where you know, they're kind of a little outcasty and they don't really have so many other friends. Um, although you know for those who see the movie, you know that starts to change with at least one of the characters and how the the group as a whole deals with that conflict between them is kind of what gives the movie its heart. Yeah, I guess it, obviously it's not on in the movies, but Stranger Things, which I don't watch because I don't watch TV. Obviously, Stranger Things has a whole '80s vibe, if I'm correct, going on, just from what I've heard. But I don't know. Somehow, Good Boys, when it came out, I sort of felt like I'd seen that preview, I'd seen that trailer for movies years in the past. And it's like that very Judd Apatow, you know, like it feels like a movie we've sort of seen before, but you're saying it's fresh. Nevertheless, it does something different. Nevertheless, if anything, it just gets maybe lowers the age threshold and therefore it seems fresh. Uh, yeah, maybe, you know, listen, uh, this is not like a, you know, a must see, this is not going to be on too many end of your lists, but it was a fun movie. If you saw the trailer and you thought it looked fun, then go see it or wait till it comes out on video on demand and go see it. You'll probably have a good time with it. So both of those you said you were sort of lukewarm. Do you have any must-sees from the month or any must-avoids? Um, I, one, I'll give you a couple must-avoids, must or, or at least what I would really avoid. Um, one was one that I was really looking forward to, probably was like on at, the, at the beginning of the year, or probably for the last few years has been on my list of movies to see, and that's Where Do You Go, Bernadette? Because the production story of this movie, you know, it's gone through a couple of rewrites and got, got pushed off, was originally come, supposed to come out last May, and then got pushed off to the end of last year and then the beginning of this year, and now finally in August. Um, is a book from 2012 that I really enjoyed, and when it was attached to Richard Linklater, who's one of my favorite filmmakers, I couldn't have been more excited for it, and unfortunately, it, it really was a mess. And it has a good cast. Good story, yeah. good cast, good director. What Absolutely, else yeah. It was it was just really a mess. Um, a lot of that, I think, you could probably attribute to the book. The novel has a very unique storytelling structure. Like it's done through a series of like emails and flashbacks and all different types of you know written prose that kind of strings together this central mystery of the story of where did Bernadette go. Um, the movie chooses to spoil where Bernadette went in the first scene of the movie and becomes much more of this like existential where did she go kind of psycho- psychologically for most of the movie. I just thought it was a real misfire. The only thing that you could really praise in this movie is Kate Blanchett, who is terrific as always. She's really an incredible actress and you know, that's felt in every scene that she's in. She really holds the movie together and gives it a chance to at least be successful. But it was just really a big misfire for me. The best thing I could say about this movie is that when I went in, I Googled how long the movie was. And it said that it was two hours and 10 minutes. So when it abruptly ended after an hour and 43 minutes, which was the correct runtime, I was I felt a, a big sense of relief that I didn't have another half hour. <laughs> that is so true. I mean, movies are getting longer and longer these days for reasons I still don't understand. Yeah, so. and like I was like looking at my clock and I was like, I feel like, I mean, I don't remember the book exactly well, but I feel like this is the end of the movie coming up and and, but, and then it just ended, and I was like, oh, thank God. I really did not want to sit here for another half an hour. So there's, yeah, a, I, there's a movie, it just reminds me of this movie that did come out, I think, in limited release this month, Genesis, which I spoke about and I saw at that film festival. And what it did is, I like the movie, and I recommend people see it, but it then it throws in a 20-minute completely separate story after the main movie has ended. It's kind of the opposite sort of thing, where you're like, okay, that was good, I'm ready to go. 
what? I have 20 more minutes of something new? Like, I don't want that. So yeah, so sometimes knowing how to end is the most important thing. Yeah, the other, the, the, the last one that I'll mention, and this is one that I kind of just watched on a whim because it, it looked like it might be interesting and is probably, you know, in my bottom two or three for the year now is uh, the Amazing Jonathan documentary, which, was, which is a documentary ostensibly about this magician or this, you know, co- comedy slash magician in Las Vegas named The Amazing Jonathan. If you've ever been out to Vegas, you've probably seen billboards for it. Maybe you went, even went to see the show. And, you know, it starts out fairly interesting. It, it's kind of about this, this magician finds out that he has a year to live or that he's going he's gonna to die soon. And he hires a documentarian to do a documentary about his final year of his tour. And kind of like 20, 30 minutes of the movie, the movie starts to go into what seems like it's going to be an interesting direction where it becomes clear that he's hired or engaged multiple documentarians to do a documentary about him, which was like interesting. I was like, oh, okay, let's see where this goes. And then it kind of just goes nowhere. And rather than abandoning the project and not making a documentary because there's no story to tell, the documentarian in this instead decides to make a documentary about himself and how he dealt with this, you know, realization that there were that multiple projects that, you know, there was multiple projects going on and how am I going to deal with that? And, 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 you know, he starts contacting the other film crew and, you know, you know, becomes this like existential thing about himself. And I just found it to be extremely off-putting. It was, you know, extremely self-indulgent and self-absorbed and, Ultimately, there's no story. There, there's like literally no story to this documentary. It, you know, the first half hour piques your interest and then the last hour goes nowhere. Yeah, that's a much better recap of the movie than I heard elsewhere. So uh, the other recap I'd heard really piqued my interest and I think you've managed to undo that. So that, that's helpful to know. I think one thing though that is good to hear from the movie, people have a tendency to think that documentaries can only take one form. You know, you show some black and white footage, you have a talking head who comes on and summarizes what you just saw. You go to the next sort of funny little montage, you would go to another talking head. And we've, we're seeing documentaries come out over the last few years that I think really blow that up, that they take a lot of different approaches. Yeah, and you know, honestly, you know, some of, my favorite documenta- docu- some of my favorite documentaries are the ones that start off as one thing and go in a different direction. Um, the documentary Tickled from a couple of years ago comes to mind as one that I loved and was fascinated by and couldn't believe where it went. But, you know, sometimes if it just a story doesn't leave anywhere, you know, you don't have to finish the documentary and, and distribute it just because you have footage of something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I guess when you feel the competition from another crew, if that uh, alone, you know, you just man got to the moon because there was someone else trying to get there first. So yeah, uh, that, can, that can be incentive enough. So two lukewarm movies, two must-avoid movies. Is there a must-see? Well, I, I think you were going to talk about Loose, which we can, we can get into, which, um, which I saw last week. I thought was really good. Um, I thought it had some limitations that held it back from being, you know, like an absolute, you know, top-of-my-list type movie. Um, but I thought it had, there was a lot of things I really loved about it. She thinks I'm a poster boy, black kid who overcame his tragic past. You really don't like her, do you? Okay, what about a responsibility to tell the truth? What? Let's go! You don't conform to what she wants and suddenly you're the enemy. This woman has some kind of vendetta against Luce. Isn't there a chance that what he wrote has went over your head? I can tell the difference between miscommunication and provocation. Like it how? Writing something like that might make someone freaked out. You really think I believe that stuff? I don't know. 
So how about this? I'll give my summary of Loose, and then you tell me what you guys thought, and then I can throw the two issues that I had with it, because I didn't think the movie worked at all. My summary of Loose is suburban white people drink wine constantly. When they pause between slurps, it's to make really horrible parenting decisions. That's about how I would sum up the movie. Um, some other stuff happens. It's a high school drama about a sort of a super successful black student who starts getting suspected of being uh, doing terrible things, and his white adoptee parents uh, are drinking wine constantly. That's pretty much, I think, the summary that anyone needs to know. That, I don't know if you guys agree with my summary, but both of you saw the movie, and both of you seem to like it. Why do you like this movie? Because I did not like it at all. I would tell people to avoid this for sure. Yeah, so I, I, thought, it was, I thought it had some really excellent elements to it. Um, I thought there was, they did a great job of, in my opinion, of playing off the theme of how we stereotype people and how our stereotypes and expectations of people shapes the way we look at them. As you mentioned, you know, the, the main conflict in the movie is between this young black boy named Luce and his black teacher who begins to suspect that this A-plus student that everybody adores in the community is not all he's meant out to be. And the starting point for everyone is, you know, they each come into it with their own expectations based on how they perceive Luce to be. And I think that the audience also comes to it with very specific expectations, which as you go through the movie, those expectations start to unravel and you start to realize that maybe the way that you saw all of these characters was due to your own stereotyping of what kind of the movie tricked you into thinking about each of these characters. And I thought that was just a really interesting experience of, as I watched the movie. Uh, I give you that. I'll give you that for sure. And I give the movie credit for that. And I think it does that. I think it's a movie that there's thought and there's sophistication in how it's presented. And I give it that. It's ambitious and it does do, it does do that well. Yeah. And I, and I thought, honestly, I thought all the acting in this movie was phenomenal. I thought Calvin, Calvin Harrison as Luce, the main character, was great. Um, no. Octavia Spencer, I thought, was phenomenal. Both of the parents, yeah. I thought, were really good. Definitely um, no. What I would say it was the, the biggest lacking quality of this movie was that the things that it's trying to say, rather than have that kind of just derive organically from the plot, it, it instead just has characters say outward, like, over they, and over again. They just, like, explain the theme of the movie at the yeah, very there, end, basically. Yeah, there, there was way too many scenes where I just felt like someone was talking to me on the screen and saying, hey, everyone, this is what the movie is about. Yeah. And that's really not, you know, what, what a great movie does. You know, obviously, you know, we all know the expression, show, don't tell, and this movie doesn't do a great job of showing. It does a whole lot of telling. Um, but, you know, that, I, to me, that doesn't stop it from being a quality movie that I would encourage people to see because I think it really probes a lot of interesting ideas. Um, it just kind of, it felt like more of a play. I think it was adapted from a play. And yeah, I was about to say, you can tell that it's adapted directly from a play. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of Fences from a couple of years ago also where, in any event, yeah, so, you know, yeah, you could definitely see that this was originally a play that really shines through. But I, I really thought it had a lot to offer and gave me a lot to think about. So that's what I... Well, if if you want to like defend uh, what I'm about to say, jump in. Yeah, I sure. agree with everything you said. Of I agree with the praise you gave in the beginning. I agree with, agree with what you said at the end about it being very forced in the way it presents things. And I disagree with what you said in the middle about the acting is so great. I thought because the structure of the movie sets it up that the characters' actions come across as so forced. I mean, the way the father acts, the way he makes these like split second to second decisions to be like really angry at his son, the way the mother acts the way Octavia Spencer, who was the only person I liked in the movie, the way that she acts, the way the principal acts, it all comes across very forced, very unnatural. And then the actors are saddled with emoting and acting out these forced 
fake actions. And I don't think that they're able to do it. I think that they're put in a difficult position where it would be very hard to act that out. I mean, particularly the lead. The lead is getting praise from other people. You praised him. And yet he comes across so fake in the movie. I mean, like, I want, like when he's speaking to Octavia Spencer at one point, it's like he stops on a dime and says something that a normal person wouldn't switch like that and completely, unless they're in a horror movie. It's just something about the, the way the lines are set up. And as you said, the way they're sort of just spoken to the audience as opposed to sort of letting us understand it. It, it, make, it saddles the actors, I think, with too much of a challenge that they aren't able to overcome. And therefore, that to me is the biggest problem with this movie. And I think we're sort of saying the same thing, but you seem to think that somehow the actors rise above that and still salvage the movie. And I think that that play set up where actors are doing things because the script tells them to do it, not because it follows from what the scene suggests, that is what breaks the movie. Very quickly, the other thing that breaks the movie for me is just the movie is trying to hit every single contemporary social ill that we have in society. Race, check. Adoption, check. Immigration, sexual consent, me too, academic pressures. I mean, it's become suffocating. It's just suffocating that if you would just have kind of seized upon two or three of those and let it shine and let it breathe, then there would have been something there. But like Octavia Spencer's character, I felt like she drowns in this movie. Like none of her decisions make any sense they're given no space to really breathe. And therefore, her character, I mean, I think I pinged you about this, uh, Will, and I said, I didn't see Ma, but is she just sort of still doing her Ma character <laughs> into a second movie? Because her character doesn't make any sense to me. I liked it just because she's very charming, but it didn't make any sense. To me. I don't know. I feel like most of the character decision, decisions and actions make sense, especially that of uh, Naomi Watts' character, the mother. I think she does a really good job portraying this uh, mother who adopted this kid is now realizing uh, this might look like, like a white savior situation, but she doesn't want to just accuse her son of doing these things just because he's black. Um, and I think she handles that like moral struggle very well. The way they speak to their son, it, se- it came across very forced to me, particularly the husband, the way the husband speaks to his wife and the son. It's just like, he changes on a dime sort of like, he's very angry all of a sudden. I don't know. My impression. That's fair. I, I see what you're talking about more with the more with the husband. I feel like he could have used more uh, development of his motivations and where exactly he stood in all of this because it it did feel a little bit like sometimes he would just go where the script needed him to go in order in order to make a scene have conflict. I think, but the Octavia Spencer character did she make sense to either of you guys? I mean, she's sort of the yeah, key. Character. I thought so. Why? Like she's so antagonistic, and it's the only explanation is because one, her sister sort of pressuring her and making her kind of throwing her off and two because she somehow expects more from minority uh, students that's sort of the underlying message from her character I don't know like to me her character is just so attacking at all times in a way that seemed weird well I I think I think she kind of puts loose on a pedestal and almost views him as you know the the person who if he comes tumbling down they all come tumbling down because so much is expected of him and that he needs to be perfect in everyone's eyes and if even this like little incident at the beginning becomes public and leads to something else then you know where's that gonna go if this like you know a plus prized young black student that everyone admires is exposed as a fraud and she i think is extremely sensitive to that and you know start wants to kind of nip it in the butt early and as she delves further and further into what's going on with him she starts to become increasingly suspicious of what else he's been up to and you know without spoiling anything it kind of just proceeds from there 
And I do think yeah. part of it is that Octavia Spencer is this very charismatic woman playing a character with really poor social skills. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, her choices of how she speaks when they have that meeting with her and Luce and the principal and the parents in the end, it's just like, why are you making these decisions? And like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. Frankly, the only decision that made sense in the movie was her sister going nuts and ripping her clothes off. Like that I could understand. Yeah. And as, you know, just going back to the, to the father, you know, just something that you alluded to earlier, I think they, they do establish early on in the movie that perhaps he wasn't into this whole, let's adopt uh, a baby from Eritrea idea and that this was really the mom that was pushing this he, he makes a comment something to the extent of well i wanted to have our own child or something like that and i think that really explains a lot of the conflict between the two of them and kind of why they have very different approaches on how they want to handle loose and and deal with these potential issues with him yeah yeah to me it's very heavy-handed in the way it kind of they just dump that on you it's just like there's too many heavy-handed social ills that the movie tries to sort of just keep throwing at the screen it almost reminded me of and this is maybe a good tie-in when we spoke about Bend It Like Beckham and Bend It Like Beckham feels the need in every new scene to throw in like, he's cheating on her and she's running off with him. And now my parents hate me. And it's just like, calm down, slow down, let one theme develop naturally. And I think it'll be a more meaningful uh, experience. So yeah, Luce and Bend It Like Beckham arguably are more connected than our feature movie, Blinded by the Light. Do you guys want to talk feature? Let's go. Uh, yeah, sure. Okay. okay, for sure. So the voters That's a really connection by the way i think loose and Bennett like that. beckham you know there's something there but i think blinded by the light is much more like Bennett like beckham they're both obviously directed by the same person garinda chadha and Bennett like beckham is what made her career that's sort of her passion project she's been saying in interviews that even though i think all of her movies she's made have been plus minus about indian immigrant or south asian immigrant themes this is sort of her return to form this is her going back to the magic of the world of Bennett like Beckham and making a similar movie. Uh, Blinded by the Light. Maybe, Av, you want to like introduce what the movie is because the people sort of need that to understand. It's not a movie about women playing soccer, but otherwise it is very similar to Bennett like Beckham. Yeah, so the, the short uh, some plot summary of it is it's, uh, it takes place in the late 80s in Britain where a young... Pakistani immigrant from a immigrant family. His father is a uh, blue collar worker. I think he works for one of the big auto companies and he's trying to fit in. Uh, they're trying to balance, you know, being an immigrant and there's um, all these like neo-Nazi marches and people mistreating immigrants going on and trying to find his place in that world. He's an aspiring writer and is trying to find some sort of inspiration and it's at this moment that he, by a friend, is introduced to the music of Bruce Springsteen and becomes completely obsessed and drawn in by Springsteen's music and becomes this diehard fan. And kind of that inspires him to, you know, stand up to the bullies at school and to, you know, reach out to a girl that he might be interested in and to prompt his writing career and kind of really develop an identity for himself and this causes conflict at home with, with his parents who want him to, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer or, you know, something else that, you know, good immigrant families try to push their children into. And, you know, it goes from there. And, you know, we, we see him go get further and further into this obsession and trying to balance the conflict with his family. And, you know, very better like Beckham in the way the conflict with the immigrant uh, South Asian immigrant family. I think the, the, the one word summary also is that this is a very, very sentimental movie. And it's wearing its sentimentality on its 
sleep. Like when this, when it becomes a musical and the, and the characters just break out into Bruce Springsteen songs, it's, it's, it's intentionally being very, very sappy. And, uh, and I think part of the charm probably of this movie is your connection to Bruce Springsteen. Is that fair? Uh, you've like, you, you know, Bruce Springsteen, you're, you're, Born in New Jersey, if I'm correct, no? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with his work. Um, you know, I, I probably know, you know, off the top of my head, I'd be able to name 10 or 15 songs, but I'm, so I'm by no means a diehard Bruce fan. But, you know, if, if a Bruce song comes on the radio, I'll, I'll know the main ones. And I've never seen him in concert, which I know is supposed to be a whole incredible experience. But, you know, I, I, I knew most of the songs in the movie. Um, and they, they use his main songs. They don't go deep. Yeah, into exactly. So, yeah, so I knew pretty much all the songs in the movie. There was nothing, you know, nothing too obscure in there, or at least if, if, it, if there was, I probably didn't know those. Uh, but, it, you know, this is really a, as much a celebration of a single artist as probably as I've ever seen in a movie, um, even more so than, like, the Beatles movies celebrate the Beatles music. This is just, like, all from beginning to end all about how awesome Bruce Springsteen is. Yeah. Will, can... Uh... How much of Bruce Springsteen did you know before going in to see this movie? I recognized zero of the songs in this movie. Did you know if Av and I would have said Bruce, a famous singer from New Jersey in the 1970s and 80s, could you have finished what the character's last name is? I wouldn't have known that he was from New Jersey, but I feel like he is the most famous Bruce that I'm aware of. If we would have said the boss. No, I wouldn't have known. (laughs) No? No. And so you saw this movie, you had almost no idea who Bruce Springsteen was. You were, you were basically the Pakistani kid in the yeah. late eight getting that tape for the first time. So you yeah. almost lived the experience of the protagonist. While yeah, the movie. I'm basically a Pakistani kid. I've, I've seen those parallels. I just didn't want to like push them too hard on the pod. But yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, yeah, I was, a, I was similarly pretty, pretty wowed. Like the, like Jerry. By Bruce Springsteen? By Bruce Springsteen. Uh, more by the movie. Uh, I was I was really impressed by it. Um, I think it it is very cheesy, like you said, but I think it embraces that it embraces that cheesiness very well. Mm. This is the type of movie where it's trying to be like just very inspiring and uplifting, and it really needs to just embrace that tone. What were your favorite scenes? What were the scenes that got you as a non Bruce Springsteen fan like shaking your fists in the theater? So my favorite scene was probably the the scene at the. I don't know if we're doing spoilers. I guess we are. Yeah, uh, jump in. Also, in you can't where... really spoil this movie. I mean, yeah, it's... I mean, <laughs> you know what's you know what this movie is. Yeah. Uh, the scene at the very end where he's giving this speech about um, how he's this kid who like you know got into Bruce Springsteen and what that means to him and the impact it's had on his life, um, and then just seeing his parents' reaction, I, I I started crying. You know, I was I was very affected by this movie. Where you saw this in theaters? In yeah, I saw this in theaters. Okay, not at the festival. No, no. Yeah, was, was there any of the musical scenes where they're running around uh, Luton and and singing? None of those got you clapping. Um, I mean, yeah, those were those were fun. I didn't actually love the music that much. It was more like. The... <laughs> classic well <laughs> yeah I, I'll, I have to say i thought those musical numbers were just very bizarre and didn't quite work for me like they were like kind of like half fantasy but like also tried to be grounded and i i just felt like they couldn't make up their mind whether you know they were actually going to have the, the actors all break out into song in the middle of the street and pretend that that's normal but then it, it just because it was kind of a mess. I didn't really understand what direction they were going into with that. And just, I found it a little weird. Um, also, the way they kept putting the lyrics onto the screen. I don't know what that was yeah. about. You know, if, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. But like, I, I kind of felt like if the whole... Will needed that. If Will one of the that. whole points of this is like, 
the power of the music and the power of the lyrics then like kind of let them speak for themselves you don't have to like shove them in my face that's kind of how i felt about it i don't know that makes sense. so uh, i mean you like the movie what scene really got to you not necessarily you know well, had you I, crying but like what scene you were like well, this is a good movie no i actually didn't really like the movie i don't know if that didn't come across oh. um I, th- I mean i i didn't think it was horrible um but i thought it was just like really saccharine i thought it was just like I, I, it was like just like way too unrealistic in terms of like no one is like this obsessed with one singer that much and like this is coming from a person as I am who is a diehard fan of many things. And, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, many things. You know, the Mets, Pearl Jam, movies, all sorts of things. And even I was just like, all right, we get it. You like Bruce Springsteen? Let's you know maybe try a different band too. Yeah, because he's an annoying ass teenager. That's what teenagers do. They find something to obsess with and that just becomes their whole identity. I guess. It was just like, I just found it like way too heavy handed. Like when he just kept being like, hmm, here's a situation in my life. What would Bruce Springsteen do based on the song of, in the, in the, a song that I just happened to be listening to at this very moment? Um, it just like, I just found it to be, you know, just like way too cheesy in a lot of ways. Um, I also thought that like they just were trying to squeeze in a lot of things that just like didn't feel like it served a purpose. Um, I don't know what the whole like neo-nazi subplot was doing in this movie other than just like trying to resonate with 2019 um i I just didn't know what it added actually added to the plot of the movie see i actually really like that because a lot of movies don't look at like this uh time period uh in britain another movie that i really liked that also tackled the neo-nazi thing was uh this is england which is set in the exact same time period in great britain and i think if you're setting a movie in that time it's necessary to address that that was a big part of the culture especially with this being a pakistani main character yeah i mean a- anyone who's familiar with the satanic verses and the whole controversy over Salman rushdie and he had to go into hiding there's a great podcast i forget exactly which one which dives into britain in the 80s and uh, you know when the, when satanic verses came out and the backdrop and sort of the immigrant pressure of south asians and muslim south asians mainly pakistanis uh so it is sort of a, a key moment i think in kind of late 20th century UK history and obviously set against Margaret Thatcher, which I think the movie does very well. Like they sort of pan back now and then and you see Margaret Thatcher advertisements or whatnot. So I think the context and the environment is maybe, to me, that's the saving grace. And I agree with Ab pretty strongly that the, the sappy musical scenes or whatnot doesn't really do it for me. Um, and, and I think sort of the immigrant contrast, I think the family contrast between the parents and the children, Bend It Like Beckham, I felt did it a lot nicer. Uh, I, the two things I do think that that work, you don't get movies, maybe you do, but I thought the movie captures fanhood really nicely. I disagree with you, Av. I think that people who become big fans, particularly of music or, you know, teeny boppers or whatever, they get really, really obsessed. And all of a sudden their room is covered in posters and they're dressing like the person. One thing I didn't quite understand is, you know how the main character is walking around all the time with earphones and that little like annoying 80s head, uh, tape deck uh, on his belt? Mm-hmm. he's walking around like that before he meets Bruce Springsteen music. What is he listening to the rest of the time? It's a good question. I, I, it was very unclear to me, like, why he walks around like that. Like, I, I figured maybe he's, he's the kind of guy who's listening to, like, self-help videos or something, or, you know, <laughs> or I don't know. But uh, that... listening to podcasts. Exactly. Yeah. He, he was a, a, a very much a visionary. The two things I like the most in the movie, besides how it shows a fan... Um, it does one thing that maybe we'll get to this later that Wild Rose fails to do, which is it shows, I think, nice to how a protagonist is sort of inspired by their circumstance to become a creative process. But the two things I really like the most that stood out for me, one is how excited people are to go to New Jersey. Uh, a spoiler is that at the end, the main character gets to go to New Jersey. 
And there's this montage where every single time he's shown being in New Jersey, he's just beside himself with excitement. And I have visited New Jersey many times. I'm sure Av has done it multiple times. Um, at yeah, some I've, been, point. I've been there once or twice to New Jersey. Yeah, and I have never been as excited to go to New Jersey. I, probably I've normally felt the opposite, um, except for going to see my family there. So yeah, I, th- I thought those scenes were very, th- those were, I thought were very moving where he actually goes and, you know, he's just like, oh, here's like the bar where Bruce Springsteen once played a song. And that, I, that resonated with me as just like yeah. excited about something that kind of puts into a, like a locus of time and place, something that is meaningful, like basically only to you. Yeah. And the second thing I think we can all agree on, I hope, is that, the girl that he likes, her father's mustache is just fantastic. I could have watched a movie about that mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I mean, the character is just so fake. You know, her parents are just like so anti-Muslim and anti-immigrants. But her, every single time her dad like looks at the protagonist and his mustache sort of bobs up and down in disapproval. Um, I just felt that whoever was the mustache consultant on this movie certainly did a, a wonderful job. Yeah, no, I, I I thought that the the side characters in this movie were were pretty underdeveloped, which you know isn't that surprising. It is not like you know a, a huge problem with the movie. I just thought in a movie like this about kind of like the universality of Springsteen in general and just like the power of music to resonate with people that 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 was just like a really missed opportunity to kind of show how this affected other people, like including the original kid that introduces him to Springsteen. We don't really yeah. know anything about him either. Yeah, uh, he's that, very underdeveloped. Yeah, and he just cool. keeps being in the movie and you're like, oh, this guy's still here. He's yeah. such a great friend. He's like yeah. always there for him. He like buys a ticket somehow with no money to go to New Jersey. Yeah, which same. Also sort of yeah. I did, however, laugh my head off basically every time the father thought that Springsteen was Jewish. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, that alone saved the movie for me. So that actually was one of, I have a list here of things I didn't like. That's one of the things I don't like. They must say that same joke seven times. Yeah, it was funny. It was funny seven out of seven times. Oh, to me, it was funny (laughs) the first three times. And at some point I was like, is this the only joke you guys have in this movie? (laughs) They just have to keep running it. We got it. Springsteen. It sounds Jewish to a Pakistani. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought that was a little push. The other, so what, what I would ask you, and I know you're obviously a Game of Thrones fan, which was the better Game of Thrones side character in this movie, Tommen Baratheon or baby Cersei Lannister? Because the love interest in this movie played uh, childhood Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. And what? obviously Tommen Baratheon in Game of Thrones plays his cool, uh, his cool neighbor. Yeah, so I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well known for being horrible at recognizing actors in movies. And those, I, I had no idea that either of those people were in this movie. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The Tom and Baratheon, you don't recognize him? I did not recognize I'm, I'm, him. I'm very, I'm very bad at it. At it but oh, okay. So I recognize Cer- him. Certainly I, didn't, certainly, I didn't realize, I didn't recognize young Cersei Lannister from one scene of Game of Thrones <laughs> years yeah. ago. Uh, okay, so uh, to me, it's simply that when, when Danny Targaryen and Jon Snow are in movies, we all sort of realize these are not really good actors, at least that's my impression. But I think the side characters in Game of Thrones were great. And I think the guy who plays Tom and Baratheon, he's really good in this movie. He's like the cool neighbor who's the head of a band. And he sort of has this like interesting relationship with the protagonist. And he kind of gets mad at him and gets back with him. I thought he acts really well. And um, yeah, I agree with you. I think the side characters are underexplored. And they're, they're generally all really good on screen. Yeah, I agree. There's another uh, another there's one side character who sucks. Oh. Who's the really bad side character in this movie for you guys? The really bad side character? Yeah, completely sappy, like straight out of. Central Are you gonna say Plastic. the teacher? 
Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. man, yeah. I mean, <laughs> also, like, like, on several occasions, she's like, oh, by the way, I got you, you work at the newspaper now, and I submitted you to some contest without your permission. Like, what the hell's going on here? What, what are we doing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, every time she looks at him, she's like, I am going to be the teacher that will change your life. Yeah, is this, how, is this how school worked in Britain in the 1980s? Because I, I don't know about that. Was this like a yeah. high school or a community college? Yeah, that wasn't yeah. clear either. Well, I think part of that is in, in England, they have like different names for everything. I think they yeah. call college what we call high school, and then they call university what we call college. Maybe. I don't know. Also, did they call guys, underwear or something else. Yeah, did you guys notice also, there's certain actions in this movie which are so telegraphed in a way that is so clear, like the script says to do this. I'll give you two examples. One is when they leave the Bruce Springsteen cassette tape at the diner with the white supremacists who then kick them off the table. It's like, he takes it out, he hands it to him, he waves it down, he puts it on the table, he like distinctly like presses it down on the table and then they walk away. And the whole time I was being like, that is such a, I don't know what it's called in literary, but when you like put something right in the open as in like, we're leaving this here so we will have to go back and confront the white supremacists, which of course happens. And then the second one is when Javid, the main character, comes back to his dad having bought Bruce Springsteen tickets for a concert. And he like waves them in front of his father repeatedly. And he's like, look at these tickets. I <laughs> bought these tickets. And you're just being like, okay, we get it. Your dad's going to grab the tickets and rip them up into small pieces. Yeah. Also like idiot father, like, you know, these, even if you're not going to let him go to the concert, these tickets have cash value. You don't yeah, just like, rip up, you don't just, like rip up money on, on principle. <laughs> yeah. So there's times like that where I felt they were so focused on making this sort of sappy, sweet movie that they were just like pushing things through like, uh, you know, some of the characters, some of those scenes. That's why to me, if I was to rank best Scottish movies of the year, having not seen uh, the movie that Will saw, I would put Wild Rose as number one. And if I was to rank best British under, you know, best misunderstood uh, United Kingdom characters who go to America to find their musical tradition, I would put uh, Wild Rose far above uh, Blinded by the Light. I don't know, but we've had a number. What we've had three movies, at least I would say, about a side minority type character who falls in love or is, finds identity in England, and of course that would be tomorrow. Tomorrow is the name of the the Beatles movie, right? Yesterday. Oh, sorry, yesterday, not tomorrow. That makes all sense. Yeah, man, revenge. Yesterday, I'm getting tripped up by all these like. Easy As we movies. all know, the the very famous Beatles song. <laughs> <called tomorrow>. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Beatles songs. I think tomorrow is very representative. Tomorrow. All my troubles. <laughs> yeah. So of those three movies, how would you rank them? The two of you guys. We have Yesterday, Wild Rose, and Blinded by the Light. Um, I would put I would put Wild Rose first, even though I didn't love it nearly as much as you did. I thought it was pretty good. I would put Blinded by the Light seconds, which I didn't really like, but you know it was fine, and you know it, you know it's, I think it's worth seeing, and I think a lot of people will like it. And yesterday, which I thought was pretty bad, a lot of that is because of my expectations and then frustration by what more what the movie wasn't instead of what it was, which you know is a little bit unfair to the movie, but that's just my experience. And yeah, does that I would correlate? Give, uh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Blinded yeah. by the Light, number one. I uh, thought it was a really good time. Uh, I would put Wild Rose number two. Uh, I enjoyed it, even though I had a lot of issues with it. And then yesterday, I, it was just a big whatever. And and these rankings don't correlate with your guys' appreciation for the Beatles, Bruce Springsteen, and country music. No, if I had to rank those, I would probably put uh, Beatles number one, then Bruce Springsteen, based on my very limited exposure to him, and then country music. Wow, Will, coming back from Birmingham, Alabama, and bashing country music. That's a, that's a hot take right there. 
No. Full of them. Like, do they listen to country music in, in Alabama? Yeah, they do. That's like all that's on the radio. Okay. So we'll have to do uh we're going to have to do a deeper dive another time into this, what, what you were listening to while you were down in Alabama. Um, how about you? How about you off? Uh, you- yeah, I would put this in, you know, Beatles, Beatles are, you know, they're one of my favorite bands. Um, I, I don't, it's actually, we, we've been listening to Beatles a lot recently just because it's, it's one of the bands that the kids will actually listen to because just they're very catchy and they like singing along. Um, so, you know, I would have the Beatles, Big Drop, Springsteen, big, 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 big drop. But Dolly Parton specifically. Yeah, it's just never been my thing. I, you know, I've tried a number of times over Shania the years. Twain. Shania Twain, you have to use some revisionist country and get you going. All three of these movies, though, I think one of the things they kind of are designed to do is it's like when you see a history movie and then you're off Wikipedia all the different characters to say, oh, did that really happen? I think in these movies, the thinking is that you're going to be listening to Bruce Springsteen on repeat after seeing the movie. Does that work in all these movies? I certainly, I certainly listen to, you know, I, I put up some Bruce on Spotify after I saw the movie for a couple of days. So it definitely had that effect. Um, and I was very happy to, you know, when I Wikipedia to see that we solved that whole neo-Nazi problem for the late eighties. So now that's yeah. gone. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing we should, it's important for listeners to realize is Blinded by the Light is based upon a book, a memoir, a Pakistani who was obsessed with Bruce Springsteen, and the director was also obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. So I just heard this in interviews that apparently the two of them are friends, and at some point they both realized they're obsessive Bruce Springsteen fans since when they were teenagers in 1980s Britain, and that's why they realized they had to make this movie. So uh, so based on a true story, very much so, even if uh, some of the musical numbers might be a little bit of a, a bonus. No, that happened too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to know if, uh, yeah, if all the relationships were there. I really wish there would have been a deeper dive that went to his friend because talk about once upon uh, a time in Hollywood, the friend that Brad Pitt is and the friend that the guy is in uh, Blinded by the Light, they're just like excellent dudes. Yeah. Right? yeah this one, and this one probably best. never, this one guy probably never killed anybody. Yeah. But put it this way. If a bomb was thrown at you, which of those two friends would you want by your side? Yeah, I would take Cliff Booth in a heartbeat. Okay. Well, on, I'd probably on the, take on... Jacob Tremblay from Good Boys. <laughs> okay, there you go. You got all sorts of best friends. It did pretty well, I think, Blinded by the White in theaters. So hopefully people... Uh, I feel like it was kind of a flop, but you know, it didn't have that big of a budget. No, but what I mean it did well is it, it's getting released. I mean, I'm... Oh, yeah, I mean, sure. It's in theaters everywhere. It's being advertised everywhere. It's on the side of downtown Tel Aviv has this big screen and it's been advertising Blinded by the Light as like the feature to see for the last week. Yeah, while, I mean, it hasn't really been working though. Yeah, but you may not have liked Wild Rose, but like I would look, Wild Rose is a little more adult fare than Blinded by the Light. So maybe it's a little harder to sell, but Wild Rose got no exposure. I mean, no one saw it. And uh, to me, it's not necessarily, you know, I think someone who likes Wild Rose, someone who likes... A Star is Born, someone who likes Blinded by the Light. I mean, they're not all the same movie, but Wildrow certainly never really got its chance. Yeah, well, Blinded by the Light for sure just has more of a, a built-in audience for it. Where, yeah. you know, anyone that's even at, at all into Springsteen will at least take a look at it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it, it has that sort of Bennett like Beckham, if you like that super famous movie, then you would just be like, oh, another movie similar to Bennett like Beckham, 15, 20 years, what is it, 17 years later? I'll do that. So I think yeah. there's, there's that as well. It has a yeah, lot I mean, of, lot you of might be surprised. Uh, so, so far, Blinded by the Light has made ten point nine million dollars at the box office. Wild Rose made six point eight million. So they're really not not that far off. Wow! Yeah, yeah I'm really surprised because I, I don't think country music fans are like streaming out to see a Scottish-made movie about a Scottish person who really likes country music. 
in the same way that I think as agree with Dov. Every Bruce Springsteen fan is going to see this movie. You sort of have to. Yeah, apparently there just weren't that many, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I didn't own it myself, but I'm not a particular... I know all the, I know the big Bruce Springsteen songs, probably the same as Dov. I've never quite understood his appeal, but I have heard that he's really in, live in concert. That's where you really have to appreciate his, uh, his genius. Yeah. And, and, I, and I have respect for a guy who sort of reinvented himself over and over and over over the last 30 plus years. One of the things I like in Blinded by the Light is that even in the late 80s, Springsteen is portrayed as this sort of dinosaur act from the previous decade. They're like, you know, they, they, they kind of say the line a bunch of times, like, who's still listening to Springsteen? That's so 70s. We're in the 80s now. And then they kind of bring up all these like horrible 80s singers that we're all going to forget about. Within. Yeah, and that, that element actually resonated to me that just like the idea of like getting really into something at like the wrong time and just yeah. kind of like it's almost like it makes it like purer in a way because like you're you're doing it for its own merit rather than out of any sort of like poser type thing or just like for social reasons where you're just like you're in love with the thing itself and like you don't need anything like extrinsic to it to enjoy it it's just like you love it for itself but again i wish they would have been explained why his cool friend is so obsessed with Bruce Springsteen. Meaning, like, where does this Pakistani identification with Bruce Springsteen, like, where was it born? Like, what's the source? Who's the who's the original? What's it called? Patient Zero. Uh, who's the fan zero for the Pakistani 1980s Bruce Springsteen interest? Uh, because it was real. You know, the director and the writer of this movie were 1980s Pakistani immigrant second generation Bruce Springsteen fans. So I wish we really would have got more of an answer to that. The movie kind of, I guess, just tries to identify, but his music speaks to people in that uh, circumstance. But uh, I, I was curious to sort of see if you could follow that trail back where it leads, which is as good a lead in as any to what I've been trying to do. Will, why are we talking bombs? Each of us is going to share our favorite bomb in Hollywood history. Yeah. So for those who listen to our big brother show with uh, Alex and Akiva, the, thir- the original 32 fans, they've been doing 32 fans in 32 days uh, leading up to the start of the NFL season. And I guess somewhere along the way they decided that each episode should be 32 minutes long exactly, although they've really been more than 31 minutes and 45 seconds or so. But And basically that at when, when they reach the 32-minute mark of each episode the last few weeks, they've been setting off a bomb to end the episode abruptly, even if they're in the middle of a sentence, in the middle of up to number five of Kiev's core eight players or, you know, week 14 of the schedule game and the episode just self-destructs. So in honor of that, we are going to talk all things bombs and share our favorite movies that were box office bombs. So, you know, we're talking about movies that did very poorly financially that we still think are good movies is basically the thrust of what we're going to get into here. Yeah. Will, what's your, what's your favorite bomb of all time? And why is it a bomb and why do you love it nevertheless? So I wouldn't say this is my favorite bomb of all time, but just one I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm going to talk about Sunshine from 2007, uh, the yeah. Danny Boyle film about this, okay, group, of course. Uh, this group of scientists trying to go to the sun in this future where the sun is dying and Earth is like freezing and they have to blow the sun up to make it warm again. So you why know. is it a bomb? Is that legitimately a bomb? So, yeah, it was made on a $40 million budget, only made $3.6 million in the U.S. And, and, and that was kind of pre-getting huge overseas box office? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think even, even overseas, it only made $32 million on a $40 million budget. So you generally want to make, like, double the budget back worldwide. Uh, what, what it, that was before he did Slumdog Millionaire, Danny Boyle? 
Uh, yes, this was right before Slumdog Millionaire, I believe. I think Slumdog Millionaire was 2008, and this was 2007. Oh, yeah, so he timed it. He timed it really well because Slumdog sort of made him into a sort of yeah, a, sort of bounced back after this. Yeah, he bounced back really, really quick. So why why do you love it then, even if uh, it clearly didn't resonate with anyone else? So I think it it really just bombed because it it shares a lot of qualities that other notorious bombs have, which is being a very cerebral sci-fi film that's not super it's not it's not star wars you know it's not this super fun action action-packed space adventure it's this drama about every everyone dying and it's just very bleak um but i just think it's really well written well directed well shot um all the acting is great it's got you know chris evans michelle yo Great cast, great movie. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw it years later. I didn't see it in 2007, and I liked it. I didn't really know about the history at the time that it was, you know, it was played up and then uh, sort of disasterified. Uh, had you seen it? No, I've never seen it. Um, it's been on my list for a while, but there's a lot of things on my list. W- w- what was on your list this month as bit, as your favorite bomb of all time? Um, I, my favorite bomb of all time, I would, I'm going to pick the King of comedy by Martin Scorsese, um, which I have identified to many people as the best Scorsese movie that you've never heard of or seen. Um, it made only two and a half million dollars off a $19 million budget. So I think that more than qualifies as a bomb. I don't really know why it didn't do well, given that, you know, it's a Scorsese movie that has Robert De Niro in the lead. Um, I guess it's, it's very totally different than most of what you, most of the movies that you would expect from that combination. But um, I really love this movie. Um, it's just, it's really surreal at times. It's filled with this like real melancholy to it. Um, it may, I mean, for those who aren't familiar, it's a, it's Robert De Niro plays this aspiring late night host who tries to basically finagle his way into getting an appearance on a late night show. Um, I won't spoil any more than that because I, I think it's a movie that's really worth seeing. I think I know the reason why I bombed, though. Correct me if I'm wrong. This movie had Jerry Lewis, right? Uh, yes. Okay. Oh, and There you go. There you go. We'll, we'll testify that a movie with Jerry Lewis is generally going to be a massive bomb. I think one of the biggest bombs of all time by box office is Jerry Lewis's considered his best movie, Dr. Doolittle, the original one. Oh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm actually in the middle of reading a book about in part about Dr. Doolittle. Dr. Doolittle was one of the five nominees for the 1967 Best Picture. Well, I guess the 1968 Best Picture of the 1967 movies. The other four being The Graduate, In the Heat of the Night, Bonnie and Clyde, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. So it's like these like four all-time classics. And then Dr. Doolittle, which was a humongous box office flop. It lost tons of money. It is like something like 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. And it was it's just a <laughs> testament to the influence of like these big studios ha- still had back then that they still have to some extent today, but nothing like this, that they were still able to get a best picture nomination for this horrible movie that was just derided both at the box office and by the critics, by everyone. Um, I haven't seen it. I'm in the middle of reading this book by Mark Harris that basically covers that year in Hollywood. That is a pretty interesting book. And I, I was, I meant to see Dr. Doolittle maybe by, by the time I finished the book, but I, I haven't seen it in time for this podcast. So Will and I are firmly in the anti-Jerry Lewis as of now camp, based upon the movies we've seen. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So I think the two of us have no doubt as to why uh, the Scorsese movie was a bomb. Well, it's very good, so you should check it out. Okay. Um, Can I I bomb you guys with mine? Go ahead. Okay. Mine is a classic bomb. I think everyone can agree. It lost $150 million uh, at the box office. 
it was so bad that the studio fired the director uh, from the Sherlock Holmes franchise with Robert Downey Jr. That it, the third one is coming out this next year. And even though this director had made the first and the second, they fired him because they didn't want him to, to kill another one of their franchise. They had been planning on the movie that he made that was The Bomb being a six-movie franchise, and that never happened, of course. And then the lead, the lead actor, uh, Charlie Hunnam, he was interviewed later and he said, I was in the middle of this thing, and I can tell you, we all knew it was going horribly wrong while they were filming the movie. And I'll add one more production note, which was that this movie took seven years to produce. It started in 2012, starring Kit Harington as King Arthur. And then that completely crashed and burned. And finally, they threw it into Guy Ritchie's lap. And he, of course, made King Arthur Legend of the Sword, which came out in 2017. It was actually ready to come out in the summer of 2016, but the early reviews were so bad that they tried to push it off into January, and then somehow they got afraid and were like, no, no, we have to release this in the summer. It's a summer blockbuster. And they pushed it into 2017, only two years ago, and it completely failed. I mean, the, the reviews were horrible. And uh, obviously that six series King Arthur Marvel MCU franchise they wanted to launch completely went nowhere. And I think, uh, you know, I think the director, besides he made Aladdin, so he made a lot of money you know, this year, but I think the director obviously took a hit. The studio took a major hit. The lead actor, Charlie Hunnam was sort of being set up in the, two, early, in the early 2000s, I think, to be this next uh, big uh, Chris Evans type figure. And I think he took a big hit. I mean, we don't really see him in much. Um, and so I think, you know, it ticks off everything you're looking for in terms of a classic bomb. Um, but I really like it. And I think, the, and I'll tell you the reason I really like it. The, the scenes in the movie that don't work is the editing. The movie must've been six hours long and then they cut it down to the two hour movie. So that just, it cuts from scenes to scene sometimes in ways that make no sense. And if you just ignore that, then Jude Law is wonderful in the movie playing the bad guy. The lead Charlie Hunnam is really fun as well. And the video game like action scenes and the sort of gangsters stealing stuff, it's all really fun. And if you grew up playing a certain kind of sword and sandal video game, then you really appreciate the movie. And I think that aspect of the movie works. And if they weren't trying to, I think they were, there were too many scripts probably involved in this movie and the movie was being set up to be too many things. And that's why it failed. And I think if they would have just let Guy Ritchie make a really cool standalone story not even attach the name king arthur to it and just let that sort of be obvious while you're watching it then we'd be like oh wow that was a fun kind of 90s style action movie but they just they set it up to be too much and i think a classic bomb is when the studio sets really high expectations and then they walk into it and they get hoisted on their own petard so to speak so i don't know did you guys see that movie did you love it do you agree with the critics that it was horrible i I didn't see it uh, on the advice of literally everyone. <laughs> well, not me. I would have. I liked it then, and it's a movie I can rewatch now. Wow. Uh, have you seen it? No, I never have, um, and I certainly never plan to. But you know, maybe I'll throw you a bone. Okay, I just watch the YouTube clips, the fun ones, and I think you'll appreciate it. What's his name? Uh, I'm forgetting that actor's name, but he in Troy he plays uh, Hector. He uh, he has kind of a lot of fun scenes in this movie as well. Uh, you know, the things it does well, it does really nicely, and it's fun. And it just if you ignore the crap, then you can have a great time at the theaters. So, Eric Bana. Eric Bana, of course. Yeah, Eric Bana. Talk about Eric Bana. There are two movies that came out either the very end of July or in August, both about uh, Israeli spies, Mossad agents. I think one of them we spoke about last month, uh, the Dead Sea, Res- the Red Sea Resort. And the other one is called The Intercept. I don't know if 
either of you guys even heard of that movie. No. But uh, yeah, both of those I did not have a chance to see yet, and I'm hoping to see because uh, I have a soft spot for any movie about the country where I'm from. So um, that's all I got for bombs. Um, is it okay, guys? Is it okay if I drop off and leave you to do Classics Corner? Uh, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, because I got to get a few hours of sleep. I'll be back in four hours uh, to talk all things basketball. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm not sure when. Uh, now we have to release these four hours apart so that that part makes sense. All right, so let's get into Classics Corner. Uh, do you want to start us off? Uh, yeah, sure. I saw a bunch of classics this month. Um, I've been really going out of my way trying to catch up on a lot of movies that I haven't seen. Um, in particular, I've been focusing on movies in the late 60s, um, partially inspired by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I kind of wanted to delve into that era a little bit more. And as I mentioned earlier, I'm reading that book about 1967 in movies. So I've been seeing a lot of movies from that time period. I will mention two that I that I thought were really interesting. The first um, is Roman Polanski's Rosemary's Baby, uh, which nice. I've never seen before. Um, I, one thing I would just really love in general is I just I love New York of the 1960s and 70s in movies. And this movie just has like a, a lot of great outdoor scenes in New York. Um, and this was just like a really great horror movie. Um, I always find that the best horror movies are the ones that kind of start from like real, like that they're like driven by like real conflict that's like in the psyche. And like the idea of just like a young pregnant woman and like all the uncertainty that a woman in that situation must be coming with. I thought that just like was a really good starting point before it really goes into like the supernatural to really, you know, ground the movie in something real. Um, an element of it that was just like very, I guess, upsetting in some ways was just like knowing everything we know about Roman Polanski and then seeing the, the type of movie that he made here. In particular, the scene after she famously is raped by, I guess, Satan or the devil or whatever, whatever we're calling it in the middle of the night. And she wakes up and like grabs her husband and is like, oh, my God, this horrible thing just happened to me. I don't know what it is. And he's like, oh, no, don't worry. That was just me having sex with you while you were asleep. Oh my god! And like that was like his cover for no, no, no. Don't worry, Satan didn't rape you. I raped you. So that was just like very, you know, not you know, into, seeing that in 2019 was just like very upsetting. Um, and especially with what we know about Polanski, just kind of took me for a loop. But overall, I thought the movie was really good. Um, Mia Farrow is really excellent in it, and it's you know, if you're if you're willing to overlook some of the. Uh, me too problems with it then i think it's worth a watch um the other one that i'll quickly mention um i saw the original planet of the apes for the first time um and I, I, at this point i don't think anybody could go into this movie knowing without knowing the ending of it um but i will say that it was interesting just to see a movie from 1968 which by all accounts was just like this incredible twist that nobody saw coming and i kind of felt like even if i had not known the ending i would have figured it out after about 20 minutes and I think that just has more to say about just like the way movies have changed over the last 50 years and our, you know, how our brains are programmed to kind of try to figure out movies as we watch them in a way that probably viewers in 1968 weren't. I mean, yeah. I just thought it was like, I'm like, come on, they're like telegraphing this whole thing. They're basically explaining to you the mechanism by which they're going to later reveal 
the twist at the end, but um, it was really good. It was a lot more cerebral and quiet than I expected. I thought it was more of an action movie, I guess just based on some of the remake, remakes I've seen. Um, and it was great to finally be able to understand the Planet of the Apes musical that I loved from that Simpsons episode. So it was really, uh, it was really a phenomenal movie. Um, I didn't know until I saw it that it was written by Rod Serling, which makes a lot of sense once you, you, you know what the movie's about and where it goes, but really worth seeing. Really great movie. Nice, nice. So uh, my classics corner this month was uh, The Land Before Time 9, Journey to Big Water. Uh, I think this is probably in the top 10 Land Before Time movies. Um, it's about Littlefoot and all the, the dinosaur friends uh, trying to um, go to this new valley, but they get separated from their friends. Uh, they get separated from their parents, excuse me, because of an earthquake. Uh, an earthquake, not an earthquake. Um, and I think we can all relate to that. Um, and probably, probably one of the best movies ever made. Yeah, would you put it in your top 10 movies ever? Top 10 movies ever. I don't know about yeah. that. I'll have to make that list. But yeah, it's, you know, it was, I definitely liked it when I was a kid. All right. I'm going to be offended if it's not at least in your top 20. Um, well, what year did it come out? Like 1983? Uh, uh, no, this is The Land Before Time 9. Land Before Time 9? Yeah. Oh, I missed that little detail. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can, uh, you'll, you'll edit some of the, me looking like an idiot. Maybe. <laughs> oh, I thought you were talking about the original. Okay. No, I think this is superior to the original. I mean, probably nine times better. <laughs> well, you know, it has to be almost. It's got to be. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, you miss one you, one key word, and then you look like an idiot on national. <laughs> and obviously, I don't remember the plot well enough to have realized. Well, this is not the movie that I remember because I, I haven't seen it in thirty fair. years. <laughs> they, wait, so they've made nine of these? I don't understand. Okay, now now <laughs> they've made like sixteen. Now now I'm gonna spend the rest of my night looking at. <laughs> They're all like direct to video, though. Yeah, I'm sure. 1988 was the original. Yeah. <laughs> How many are there? Oh, 14. Excuse me. Last one is from 2016. Wow. Now I've got to. I've got to see this one so I can update my best movies of the 2016 list. This was Journey to the Big Water. Yeah, Journey to the Big Water. Okay. So I, yeah, I thought you had said something else, and then I heard Land Before Time. So I was like, I was also talking to Akiva on the side. So. Ah, that's fair. I'll confess. We're leaving all of this in. <laughs> Yeah, Akiva just texted me to say he just saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so obviously I was preoccupied with that. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's a pretty big deal, too. What did um, he think? Um, he said he really loved it. His wife did not. Ah, uh, that, that, that checks about, out. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds about right. Oh, the dude liked it, the wife, the woman did it. All right, any other classic corner? Uh, nope, that's going to be it for this month, and I think that's going to be it for our end of August 2019 movie podcast. So thank you to everyone for listening. And uh, check back. I'm not sure if this is going to be posted before or after our basketball thing, but if that hasn't been posted yet, uh, check back soon to hear us talk about the best basketball movies of all time. And if it has been posted, you probably haven't listened to it. So also check it out. Exactly. Uh, So take care, everyone. All right. See you in a few hours. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. 
Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.